Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. For Pacifica Radio, May the 15th, 2022. I'm Scott Horton. This is Anti-War Radio. All right, y'all, welcome to the show. It is Anti-War Radio. I'm your host, Scott Horton. I'm the editorial director of Antiwar.com, and I'm the author of the book, Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. You can find my full interview archive, more than 5,700 of them now, going back to 2003, at scotthorton.org and at youtube.com slash scotthortonshow. And you can follow me on Twitter, at scotthortonshow. And listen, guys, it's KPFK's Spring Fun Drive. The phone number is 818-985-5735 to pledge. Anyone who pledges $75 or more will get a copy of my book, Enough Already. That's 818-985-5735, or uh, just go to kpfk.org. Now, introducing Antiwar.com's news editor, Dave DeCamp. Welcome to the show, Dave. How are you doing, sir? I'm good, Scott. Thanks for having me back. Really appreciate you joining us on the show here. Now, the big news is the U.S. Congress is giving $40 billion to the Ukrainian military for the war there uh, fighting against the Russian invasion. And yet Rand Paul, at least at the time we've recorded this, is holding up the $40 billion in, I don't know if any of that money was even going to bounce off of the roof of Kiev before being slam dunked back into the Chase Manhattan accounts of Raytheon and Lockheed, but that money was for weapons and it's being at least temporarily held up. What can you tell us about that? First of all here, sir. Yeah. So it's a pretty incredible amount of money that uh, they want to give Ukraine. Um, Biden asked Congress for $33 billion for the aid package and uh, the Congress, uh, they raised it to about 40 billion, $39.8 billion and about 23.8 if my math is right, is uh, $23.8 billion is for military aid. That's for weapons. Um, the rest is, you know, what they call economic assistance uh, and humanitarian aid. And, you know, some of it is just to direct aid that they just give to the Ukrainian government to spend how they will. Uh, so a lot of that will <laughs> probably end up going towards weapons or who, who knows what. Ski trips um, in Switzerland is the first thing I'm picturing, right? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's an it's a massive amount of money, and this is on top of thirteen point six billion that um, they signed off on in March. It was part of the spending bill Biden signed, and so if you you add those two totals together, it's over fifty three billion dollars in one year for Ukraine. And to put it in perspective, um, Russia's entire military budget for twenty twenty one was about sixty six billion. Uh, so it's just a little shy of what Russia spends on its military each year. Um, yeah, so Rand Paul, uh, that the House passed it on Tuesday night, and 57 Republicans voted against it, which was more than I expected. Uh, of course, it's not enough, but it's still a pretty significant uh, amount because other bills, uh, you know, 
um, for sanctions and uh, the Lend-Lease Act that Biden just signed into law, reviving the World War II-era Lend-Lease Act, which allows the U.S. to send weapons to Ukraine while technically requiring payment at a later date. But who knows if we'll ever get the payment. You know, only a few handful of Republicans vote against that. So I was happy to see 57 voted against it. I guess it's just such an absurd amount of money to send to Ukraine in the middle of what's an economic crisis here in the U.S. with inflation over 8% and everything else. So, uh, yeah, and then last night, Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell, uh, they wanted to hold a quick vote on it, but Rand Paul blocked it. He he said that he wants to... Uh, change the text to to create like an inspector general like they had for Afghanistan for for oversight for all this money that we're sending. Um, so what he did, I think, at least pushed it back at, at least a week from what I understand. Uh, so now they can't vote on it until next week. Um, I don't think he, you know, he's not going to get what he what he wanted, his inspector general. Uh, originally, they were going to vote on it as a separate amendment. So they still might do that, but who who knows? I mean, even if you know we had one for Afghanistan, and all that did was was at least it 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 showed us how much how they were wasting all this money. It didn't fix anything or change anything. You know, they never listened to him. <laughs> you right. know, he didn't make some great footnotes if you were writing a book about Afghanistan, though. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it, I think it would it would be good to have. Uh, um, but yeah, it's really just amazing because to, to think that there is no. There's zero oversight right now uh, with all this money we're sending to this, um, you know, notoriously corrupt government. Even the U.S. officials say it's corrupt. That's that that's their excuse for not uh, admitting them into to NATO. But of course, right. they still dang- dangled it in front of them. But so, yeah, I mean, it's it's really something. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, it, it is going to pass through the Senate. What Rand Paul did just d- delayed it and Biden's going to sign it. But um so, yeah, at least they pushed it back a little bit. What a legacy for the Democratic Party. Even all the Democrats who climbed on Cindy Sheehan's back so they could retake the Congress in 2006, pretending to oppose George Bush's war in Iraq, which they turned around and immediately started funding. Did they not even remember that at all? Not one Democrat in the House of Representatives voted against this? You know, during Iraq War II... There were five Republicans that voted against it. But Nancy Pelosi, the current speaker still, that was a generation ago. Nancy (laughs) Pelosi led the Democratic majority in opposing Iraq War II in the House. Now they knew it was going to pass anyway, but still. And now, 20 years later, they're unanimous in. I'm sorry I keep bringing this up in this context, but it seems very important that this is almost like a Vietnam level proxy war with the Soviet Union type thing. Except Vietnam is 3,000 miles away on the other side of China from the USSR. This is right in Ukraine, right on their border, just a few hundred miles from Moscow. And they're acting like this is just nothing at all. Yeah, it's really, and, and you know, all the progressives, like, I remember Ilhan Omar, when, when things kind of first started, she tweeted that it was reckless to send all these weapons into Ukraine without any oversight and accountability. But I guess that doesn't really matter anymore <laughs> or it's just political suicide to be a democrat and to vote against this stuff um and a few of them you know what they i think omar and i forget who else but a couple other democrats they voted against the russian oil ban but that was really the only level of democrat opposition we've seen to these policies um yeah it seems completely unanimous i can't picture any democrats in the senate 
uh, voting against it. Some Republicans, <laughs> Senate Republicans, are complaining that uh, it's not enough money. They want to send another billion, I think, that they wanted to add a little more. Um, but I'm sure Rand Paul will probably vote against it. But, uh, yeah, it's just it's really uh, a shame uh, that how uh, in line everybody is uh, with this, with what we're doing over there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the way that the partisan politics work, where we all know that the leaders of the Republican Party are absolute hawks. They're all George W. Bush, John McCain hawks. And even among the America firsters. They're all still a bunch of right-wing tough guys, so about half of them or more are hawkish on this. And so, and then, as we're talking about, we have no dissent in the Democratic Party at all on the national level. None. So the only dissent is a small faction of Republicans in a party that's still dominated by the W. Bush types. And so where does that leave the American people with, you know, we have essentially no voice in this. It's just mm-hmm. amazing to see. And the Democrats as ever, because they are such cowards, are terrified of being called weak. And so they act all tough by just stealing money from regular working people and sending it over to make to, you know, fight to the last Ukrainian, as they say. Uh, and then that gets to, you know, I guess that does help them politically. They get to be tough enough to be protected from those accusations of weakness by the Republicans, but then uh, not really, as you say, the Republicans still just say double it, triple it. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, the one Republican uh, I saw kind of questioning policy. I mean, I would say the best person on this has been Thomas Massey in the House from Kentucky. He's voted against every single bill related to any of these recent escalations, any sanctions, um, even symbolic resolutions and stuff. He's been really, really good on it. But uh, during a Senate hearing the other day, Avril Haines, the director of national intelligence, um, did a hearing. And uh, Senator Tommy Tuberville, who I don't really know much about, he's from Alabama, um, and he was asking her, he was kind of saying, he didn't really word his questions that great, but he was asking her, and it was also the head of the Pentagon's defense intelligence agency was there. And he was asking, basically, like, do you think Russia thinks they're at war with us? He was just warning that we were doing too much. He said, I think we're poking the bear here. Uh, you know, there could be an escalation. And the reaction to his questioning that I just saw from Democrats and even Avril Haines, like the look on her face, she looked like disgusted that he would even ask that question. It's really, you know, and everybody, of course, that questions it, they're just labeled a Putin. They're repeating Russian talking points or they're a Putin apologist. Um, so the atmosphere for any kind of dissent. And he even, you know, he's voted in favor of everything. He, he might vote for this aid bill, I'm sure. But even just that kind of basic questioning of it, just get they just look at that with disdain. And it's it's really a dangerous uh, environment. And, you know, I don't know if you saw this, um, Dave, but John J. Mearsheimer was on the news hour on PBS arguing. It was sort of a debate with him and Evelyn Farkas from the Obama government. Mearsheimer, of course, the realist from the University of Chicago. And they all agree. The news lady frames it this way. And then they both agree that, yeah, premise one, Russia would never use nukes unless they thought the existence of their state was threatened. And then two, yes, losing a war in Ukraine, that could count as feeling like their state is threatened from Russia's point of view, from Putin's point of view. And then three, yes, we're dumping in all these weapons because we're trying to make them lose. And then so Mearsheimer says, 
we should not be doing this. This is incredibly foolish. During the Cuban Missile Crisis, we negotiated. We can just ratchet up and ratchet up. This is madness. And then Evelyn Farkas says, Nah, look, don't worry about it. Because I'm sure, you know, they could use nukes, I guess. But they would surely signal first. But then, as you write up here, Russian official, my parenthesis, says for the hundredth time that we're risking direct conflict with Russia and the United States. And then, which obviously means an extreme potential, not just of nuclear war, but of the apocalypse. Yeah. And, um, you know, also the narrative uh, that Putin is kind of this irrational madman uh, that could use a nuke at any time. I mean, right. well, if that's the case, then we shouldn't be funding a proxy war against him because who knows what he's going to do. But and this this just doesn't seem to be, to me, at least factored into the Biden administration's policy at all. The danger, the risk of nuclear war. That was Dmitry Medvedev that that warned that again, he's been saying things like this, but I think it's important to highlight, you know, he said what they're doing by pumping weapons in, the intelligence sharing, all this stuff is risking a direct war with between NATO and Russia, which could easily turn into, as he put it, a full-fledged nuclear war. And, you know, everybody knows that this was a widely accepted thing for, you know, decades and decades that the U.S. and Russia cannot go to war, but we're funding this war right on their border. And it's, keeps escalating and, and there's it doesn't seem like there's any off ramps and you know you have these intelligence leaks bragging about helping kill russian generals and sink russian ships um we don't know how exactly how accurate th that information is but it's the the fact that they're leaking this stuff to the press i mean that's it, just major provocations um we think about how the whole u.s establishment reacted to that nonsense russian bounty story that was in the new york times um, that said Russia was paying bounties to the Taliban that turned out to be based on nonsense. But just remember that reaction and now what we're doing openly and bragging about it. Um, you know, I don't think Putin at the level it is right now is going to, you know, strike any, anything inside NATO territory. But, you know, there's also been reports that there's British SAS soldiers in Kiev training Ukrainians troops and like may that might be his message to strike somewhere where he knows that there's some some western uh special forces or um officials or something i mean i doubt he would he would you know bomb kiev when there was like a politician visiting or something but you know we just don't know what what at what point is he going to say all right this is enough and then what will our response be to that <laughs> you know like these are just such dangerous things and uh what you know this we're seeing, you know, this slow escalation from, you know, when when the war first started, uh, the, the U.S. didn't want to publicly confirm that they sent Stinger missiles, the shoulder-fired anti-aircraft missiles to Ukraine. The Pentagon was wary of confirming that. And now we've gone to every time Biden announces a new package, they, re they release a detailed list of every weapon that they're sending, including howitzers. You know, we've up, gone up to heavy artillery now, openly helping Poland and uh, the Czech Republic sending tanks. Now and, you got and, Biden touring the Javelin missile factory in Alabama and putting yeah, it on the front yeah. page. Exactly. Yeah. And you you had the, the intelligence sharing. Uh, they were very uh, hesitant to share details of it. And then you had all these reports in the media bragging about what, what we're doing. So the next escalation, um, what I've seen a lot of hawks say in, in Washington, I've seen a lot of think tankers say this, is that they think the next 
step is that since we're sending them so many weapons that the Pentagon's going to send contractors in to maintain the, all these weapons and all this equipment. Um, so yeah, I mean, at this rate, it, do, it does seem like there is going to be another step, another escalation. Um, mm -hmm. and nobody is factoring in this enormous risk that we're taking. Sorry. Hang on just one second. Hey guys, anybody who signs up to listen to this show by way of Patreon will be invited to join the Reddit group. And I'm going to start posting stuff over there more. That's patreon.com slash Scott Horton show. Thanks. Hey, y'all, LibertasBella.com is where you get Scott Horton Show and Libertarian Institute shirts, sweatshirts, mugs, and stickers and things, including the great Top Lobsters designs as well. See, that way it says on your shirt why you're so smart. Libertas Bella, from the same great folks who bring you Ammo.com for all your ammunition needs, too. That's LibertasBella.com. You guys, check it out. This is so cool. The great Mike Swanson's new book is finally out. He's been working on this thing for years. And I admit, I haven't read it yet. I'm going to get to it as soon as I can. But I know you guys are going to want to beat me to it. It's called Why the Vietnam War, Nuclear Bombs and Nation Building in Southeast Asia, 1945 through 61. And as he explains on the back here, all of our popular culture and our retellings and our history and our movies are all about the height of the American war there in, say, 1964 through 1974. But how do we get there? Why is this all Harry Truman's fault? Find out in Why the Vietnam War by the great Mike Swanson. Available now. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. And there, it's a good guess that there are deniable special operations forces and CIA paramilitary types and whoever else in their special activities division and whoever else who, as you say, could get killed and could serve as a real tripwire for war here as well. Speaking of which, it's KPFK, it's Fun Drive, and sorry to interrupt the show, but I'll be real brief here. I've been good on everything on this uh, network for uh, 10, 11 years now, 11 years, and so you rely on it. It's anti-war radio on KPFK on Sunday mornings, and if you want to make sure there's still a KPFK for anti-war radio to be on, maybe pitch in. 818-985-5735, 818-985-5735 to pledge. Anybody who donates $75 or more gets a copy of my book, Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. And uh, also you can donate at kpfk.org. Thanks. All right, back to the show here, talking with Dave DeCamp, news editor at antiwar.com about essentially the politics of the war in Russia here in America and... Um, developments in the arms sales and escalation over there. So uh, to get back to a major point you were making there about this co-belligerency, you know, um, David Sanger reported in the New York Times as a flat fact, Dave, that all this support makes America a co-belligerent in the war. He didn't even say, according to some lawyer's opinion or anything like that. It's just true. Under international law, America is at war with Russia now. It's just that Congress hasn't declared it, and it's still a proxy war. That made you Putin's puppet if he called it a proxy war two weeks ago. Now they openly call it a proxy war. And they openly say, our Secretary of Defense and our Secretary of State openly say, 
The purpose here is to prolong the war to weaken Russia. On April the 5th, they said in the Washington Post, should be famously, they would rather see, this is the quote from the Post, they'd rather see Ukrainians continue fighting and dying than to see the war end too early. Washington Post, April the 5th, as cynical as they could be, openly invoking Afghanistan and Syria, saying, we don't know how to beat an insurgency, but we know how to support one. All the while, you have Russian officials like Dmitry Medvedev, the former president, and Vladimir Putin's right-hand man, and his other right-hand man, Sergei Lavrov, the foreign minister, warning us over and over again, don't you see that this could lead to a nuclear war? You know, these are the same men who said for the last 10 years, don't you see that this could lead to a war in Ukraine? <laughs> and now they're saying, hey, we might nuke your capital city and our government. Well, they just persist because that's the resistance thing to do, Dave, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> but the Russian and American war plans are for once nukes start going off, they all go off. General mm -hmm. nuclear war. There's not five different plans. And let's go with the minimal nuclear war plan. Nope, there's not a minimal one. Once the nukes start going off, we're hitting all their cities and all their military bases and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and maybe thousands of nukes. And, um, but anyway, sorry, I'm just rambling at you. I ought to figure out a question to ask you. What the hell is anyone doing about this? I know that Antony Blinken hasn't spoken to Sergei Lavrov since February the 15th, but there was news mm -hmm. this morning, right, that our uh, defense minister, our secretary of defense, Lloyd Austin, at least got on the phone with their defense minister. Do we know anything about what they talked about or if uh, very little progress was made? Very little information there. Um, so Austin, uh, according to the Pentagon readout, uh, it's, it was very short. Lloyd Austin called for a ceasefire. And then according to the Russian side, it was also very short. It said their defense minister, Sergei uh, Shogu, uh, you know, discussed Ukraine with uh, the Pentagon chief, Lloyd Austin. That was really it. And um, so... According to John Kirby, the Pentagon spokesman, um, Austin's been trying to get a hold of Shogu for for a while now, since the, the end of March. And Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, he's been trying to get a hold of his Russian counterpart. And and Russia has, you know, they set up a deconfliction line at, at a lower level. Apparently, Russia said that's, that's the way the military is going to communicate. But, <clears throat> you know, we've seen this before, where you see the Pentagon seems more interested in diplomacy than the State Department. And, you know, there's no indication that Blinken has tried to talk with Lavrov and Lavrov and his uh, deputies have said that they're open to talks with the U.S. Um, and Biden has no plans to speak with Putin. So there, there's no uh, will on the side of the Biden administration, I don't think, to to really talk to the Russians. Um, Austin uh, reaching out, you know, I, it is good, I guess, but it doesn't seem like much uh, came out of it. And I don't think... To, to Russia, you know, it's not up to the heads of the, each country's militaries to, you know, negotiate. Uh, that's more for Anthony Blinken, uh, and he's completely failed us. Um, you know, and talk, talking more about, you know, you mentioned that Washington Post story about how NATO, for, for some in NATO, because there are some NATO leaders, including uh, Macron in France, who want to see a negotiated solution. He just said it the other day that, um, you know, they sh we should be talking. This is going to be solved at the negotiating table. We shouldn't try to humiliate Russia. Um, but then you have Boris Johnson, who uh, is, you know, openly saying that he he urged Ukraine uh, 
not to negotiate with Russia. There is a report in Ukrainian Pravda, which is different than Russia's Pravda. Um, but anyway, it said when Johnson visited Kiev on April 9th, I believe, he told Zelensky not to negotiate with Russia. And according to this report, he said, even if you're ready to sign a deal with Russia, we're not. Speak, and it said he was speaking for the collective West, mostly probably speaking for the UK and the US, uh, m- more so than the collective Europe, I would say. But anyway, uh, you know, report isn't confirmed, but then Johnson spoke with Macron on the phone. And according to the readout of from his office, um, it said that during his he updated on his visit to Kiev and he said that he urged Ukraine not to negotiate with Russia. Um, so that's, you know, kind of where we're at, that the country's giving sending the most weapons to Ukraine and backing them the most are are discouraged act seem to be actively discouraging negotiations. Well, we know Johnson is, and it and it, we have pretty strong evidence that the U.S. is discouraging these negotiations too. Well, and there's so, no way that he would have done that without consulting with the Americans first. So absolutely, they at least agreed to it if they weren't yeah. the ones who sent him on that mission. I mean, that much is just indisputable without yeah yeah having a fly on the wall. But there's just no way he would do that. And then you have this story here where he's now passing out. That's Boris Johnson the. Uh, Prime Minister of the UK is passing out war guarantees to Sweden and Finland and uh, telling them that if they get into a war with Russia, that don't worry because Britain has your back. But of course, then that means America will have to come along with Britain if they get into a war with Russia. Mm -hmm. And I seem to remember all hell breaking loose before over things like this. Um, And so can you tell us a little bit about what progress do we have um, from their point of view? about um it seems they keep announcing it like it's just a fait accompli right that they are going to bring sweden and finland into nato as soon as possible oh and then please at the same time could you reference here about the i think it's the swedish leaders are saying that uh relations with putin can never be normalized at the same time they're trying to join nato uh at the same time that lithuania's government uh, their foreign minister is explicitly calling for regime change in russia as well He's yeah so, crazy dude yeah yeah things are that's not like living good. right in laredo and then just constantly taunting the ms-13 I'm like you guys <laughs> what are you gonna do about it you know i don't know i yeah. wouldn't do that no yeah it, uh, i mean so yesterday uh we got the clearest indication that Finland's going to apply to join NATO. The prime minister and president said in a joint statement that um, they're, they pretty much announced that they're going to apply for membership. I think there's still a few more steps with their parliament. I'm not sure exactly the details, but, you know, they basically said that they decided to do it. Sweden, uh, there's been reports in Swedish media, they're expected to make an announcement soon and they're probably going to go for it. And then, so in the interim, during the application period, they want security guarantees um, you know, out of fear that Russia would attack them before they become a NATO member. So Boris Johnson, you know, signed a deal with them saying that the UK would protect them. And the Swedish prime minister said that she got security assurances from the US, uh, you know, not guarantees. She said it wasn't like a NATO, uh, you know, Article 5, but she said, you know, that they would respond if Russia did something. So, yeah, and I mean, Finland has an over 800-mile border with Russia, and that more than doubles Russia's, you know, frontier with NATO territory. 
Um, and they, of course, they're going to reinforce that border. They hinted at nuclear deployments in the Baltic, in the Gulf of Finland there, and uh, possibly Kaliningrad, their, their enclave in the in the Baltics. And uh, so, yeah, and then uh, Johnson, Boris Johnson, again, when he met with the Swedish leader to sign this deal for security guarantees, they they said, they put out a joint statement that said, relations with Vladimir Putin can never be normalized. Um, and you have Lithuania's foreign minister, you know, you had Biden say Putin cannot remain in power, which is an incredible thing for the U.S. president to say. But, of course, you had the White House clarify that regime changes in the policy. Now, I don't really believe that. But, you know, here the Lithuanian foreign minister really laid it out and said it's the only way for us to be safe is if Putin, the entire regime is taken, is gone. Um, so. This is just telling me that, you know, we're not turning back from this, that no matter what happens in Ukraine, even if Zelensky decides to sign a deal, even though it would be hard for him to do without, uh, you know, the backing from the U.S. and NATO, um, that, you know, these sanctions on Russia are going to stay. Europe's going to get off Russian gas and Russian oil. And, um, you know, we're we're in this new era uh, of a, a closed off Russia. Yeah, that's if we're lucky and we don't just all burn up. All right. Mm -hmm. Well, um, listen, thank you very much for your time, Dave. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Um, thanks for having me. Um, sorry, I never have any good news, but at least the Yemen ceasefire is still holding up after five weeks. Yeah. Well, let's catch up next week on that. Yeah, sounds good. All right, you guys, that's Dave DeCamp, news editor at antiwar.com. And again, it's fundraising time at KPFK. So stop by kpfk.org or call 818-985-5735. That's 818-985-5735. Anyone who pledges $75 or more gets a copy of Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism by me. And this has been Anti-War Radio. I'm your host, Scott Horton. Check out the interview archive at scotthorton.org and at youtube.com slash scotthortonshow. Follow me on Twitter at scotthortonshow. And I'm here every Sunday morning, usually from 8.30 to 9, but uh, during Fun Drive from 9 to 9.30 on KPFK, 90.7 FM in LA. See you next week.